0: Welcome back to the Read the Bible podcast. Today we'll be reading through James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2 verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so James is essentially saying that uh, the person doesn't have faith if that faith doesn't lead to works. Verse 14, he says, you know, if someone says he has faith, I I mean, but doesn't have works, then can that faith save him? And so I think he's using faith in that second sentence there as kind of a sarcastic way, right? Like, can that faith in quotation marks save him? Because it's really not faith if it's not leading to any changes in your life. Uh, Basically, what James is saying here is the needy person benefits nothing from empty words, while the believer benefits nothing from inactive, empty faith. And so that's James' point. He's all about genuine faith, faith which actually changes our lives. And if you do believe, you will act differently, right? So if I believe uh, tomorrow morning it's supposed to snow, it's supposed to snow 8 to 12 inches here, some people don't uh, live in Minnesota who listen to this podcast, which is super cool. I've gotten some letters, uh, emails, I should say, uh, from people out on the East Coast and the West Coast. Uh, I just think it's so cool that people from around the country are listening to this podcast, which is super fun. Um, but so the, uh, in Minnesota here, I'm supposed to get 8 to 12 inches of snow tomorrow, and uh, we're not going to cancel church. Um, I'm going to snow blow out the driveway, hook up the trailer to my uh, truck, drive it to church, unload it. We're going to meet in the high school like we do every Sunday. And if you believe that, then you're going to come. If you believe we're having church tomorrow, you're going to act on that action, you're going to come. But if you think, I, if you're doubtful, right, like if you're, you know, I don't know if Jeremy's going to be able to make it, the snow is going to be really deep, I don't know if his truck is going to is going to be able to make it to the high school, we might as well just stay home. If that's what you believe, then you're going to act on that, right? If, if you think it's, you know, doubtful that we're going to have church, you're going to act on that. And so if you believe in Jesus, we'll act on it. If we doubt the Lord, we'll act on that. And James is saying, if you know, if we're someone whose faith does not lead to works, do we have faith, or or is it that we have doubt, or maybe even rebellion, right? Those are the other options that James doesn't go into. Um, but basically, it boils down to, in verse 14 through 17 here, that the needy person benefits nothing from their empty words, while the believer benefits nothing from inactive faith. Uh, whether they are just someone who has um, racked with doubt and doesn't act on it, or someone who... Uh, is an open rebellion, and rejects it. Either way, that type of faith isn't benefiting from them at all. And we read last week about, or maybe it was the week before, about the double-minded person. Um, and we, James here, is, is challenging us to see, is that us? Are we someone who says we're a Christian? Are we? Do we say we believe in Jesus? And if we do, then let's look at our lives. Do we see that? do we see ourselves acting out? What decisions have we made lately that are different because we're Christian? That's basically what the application of this passage should be to our lives. What have I done lately differently because I believe in Jesus? While everyone else is prioritizing other things on Sunday morning, do I prioritize worshiping the Lord? While other Christians come come to church out of maybe religious obligation or tradition, Do I come because I love Jesus? While other people don't study God's word, do I study God's word? And then obviously the one that James gives here, the example James gives here, is one that evangelicals don't do as well. We're usually really good at coming to church, really good at studying the word, things like that. Uh, the, The one James says here is, are we serving and blessing others? So this is a a little bit of an aside, but it's kind of important to me as a pastor because it guides a lot of my decision-making. There's so much of the Bible that talks about helping the poor in general, but for the most part, the verses in the New Testament that talk about helping the poor, they're mostly aimed at helping other believers in Jesus Christ. Now why is this important? Well, churches and pastors especially get endless phone calls from people who are looking for money. Um, And so how do we guide our decision-making? I have this amount of resources. How do I distribute that to people in need? And uh, in our church, we almost exclusively uh, distribute um, financial help to brothers and sisters because of verses like this in James. Uh, brother, If a brother or sister is poorly lacking, he's talking about brothers and sisters in the faith. Um, there are verses in the Bible which talk about helping the poor in general, and so that is a value, um, but for the most part, we help. And we're doing an excellent job at helping people in our church who are in need, um, which is an I love that about our church. We're really, really good at that, better than most churches that I've ever seen. Um, So anyway, back to the Bible about that. um, Matthew chapter 25 is one of the most commonly used chapters about helping people and helping poor people. It's the one where it says, uh, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? or a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison or visit you? And the king, you know, representing Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so Jesus, or brothers and sisters, Jesus never refers to people who've rejected him as his brothers and sisters. And so he's certainly talking about believers in Jesus. And so this is almost more about a passage about how the world treats the church, rather than the church serves the world. And so it's one of those important things to kind of understand why does the New Testament focus so much on helping brothers and sisters, and isn't that selfish? The answer is no, the church is very small, the world is very big, there's no way that we can solve all the problems in the world. Therefore, what we do is we get, uh, band together as a loving community, united around Christ, and help each other. That is really the focus. Now, there's certainly a focus on helping the poor in general. So we will help the poor. And just you know, just you know, you know, so I don't come off as just totally you know, selfish or uncaring, I almost always will connect the help with Jesus Christ. And so one of the first things I say when people call me for help, I say, are you a part of a church community? To which point they usually say no. And I say, we do a great job of helping people in our church community. That's part of being a Christian is you join a community of people to follow the Lord. And what it means to join that community is that we pledge to help each other so you can help others and they can help you. Um, And that way I'm trying to guide people away from just, you know, trying to receive, 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 to looking to be followers of Jesus, transforming them right there. I'm someone who needs to look to give as well. I'll often invite them to church and offer them, uh, you know, $50 gift cards for food. We don't do money uh, because oftentimes they're looking really for drugs. And the reason why I know this is because even though I offer them sometimes hundreds of dollars in gift cards, if they'll come to church and pick it up, uh, they almost never do. And that's really sad, Uh, but that's just kind of the state of our world today. People who are calling churches, for the most part, are not, you know, calling, looking for great things. And so it's part of my responsibility to make sure I'm not enabling them, um, give, you know, giving them money to do habits which are ungodly. I don't believe that's honoring to God. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I do what I do. And then every once in a while, somebody will come to church, and by then I've usually got such a buildup of gift cards from the people who didn't show that, you know, usually we're able to be quite generous. Um, But a lot of the verses in the Bible uh, are focused on um, helping the poor, and if you look closely, uh, a a lot of them in the New Testament are focused on helping others in the church. Again, it's because the church is small, the world is very large, the answer is to follow Jesus Christ. So we invite people into following Jesus, not just giving them money. What really transforms people's life is Jesus. And I'm just going to be honest, uh, I've given out many, and I, I said this in a sermon, and it seems a little, um, I just, it's hard to say a little bit, because I don't want to come off as, like, um, uncaring or unfeeling or anything like that. But I've never, I've been a part of churches for like 10 years, I've never really changed someone's life by giving them money. And we've given, I, I've given out thousands, I've been a part of, you know, helping people out by giving them thousands of dollars. Uh, to pay mortgages, to pay rent, uh, to purchase vehicles, things like that. Uh, for the most part, no one's life has been changed by that. I mean, it's been changed for a moment, and I don't want to say it's insignificant because in that moment it might be a really big deal for them. But as you look at the course of their lives, I've never seen a dramatic change because of our help. Uh, we've helped people who are struggling um, financially with uh, because of alcoholism and things like that, and giving people rent money, giving people money for mortgage, and unless Jesus Christ enters their life and transforms their life, they are in the same spot the next month. I have seen many people have their lives changed by Jesus. Many. There are many in our church whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. And so when we're looking to help people, the goal is to change their life through Jesus Christ. So whenever we try to, you know, whenever we're giving money, we're always trying to make that uh, as an invitation to come and follow Jesus. Um, And so giving money can be great. It can help people out for a moment, but unless you have Jesus transform you, you'll be right back in it. And there's all different types of idols that need to fall uh, for us to begin to follow Jesus Christ and his commandments in this life. It might be an addiction. um, It might be an identity problem. There's so many of us who have problems with our identity. We draw our identity from this or that, um, and then not from Jesus. And that leads us to make poor decisions, uh, which lead to ruin on our lives and therefore, we're in a position where we need great help. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why we might be in that position, but we're never about solving people's problems through money. Uh, the Bible never seems to tell us that we're going to go solve the world's problems by giving them money. It's that we're going to solve the world's problems by giving them Jesus. I should have rung the bell a few times so that I got your attention before I said that. But that's, that's really big. We're not about solving the world's problems through giving money. We're about solving the world's problems through giving them Jesus. James stresses in verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so James has essentially challenged people who have um, deceived themselves into thinking they have faith, thinking that to have faith, all it means is that I say, I believe. And yet, well, what actions are you doing uh, that show you believe? And so that's what James is really pushing back on. Um, And it's a great thing for Christians to always do to analyze our behavior because we can so easily fall into empty faith, have faith that is dying, um, have faith that's built around religious tradition or things like that, rather than an actual love of Jesus which changes our lives to follow him. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, James says. Continuing on reading verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Um I just love the word. I love reading the word and learning from it and I love teaching it as well and helping people understand that and hear from God also. This is God's word of uh when we hear from God through it. And so here we have a passage that's very confusing for a lot of evangelical Christians uh because what oftentimes we've heard and had stressed is more of the uh teaching of apostle Paul. Uh, which is that we're saved by faith and not by works, which is true. And James, what he's saying here is true as well. Where the confusion comes in is that both James and Paul are using the words faith differently, faith alone differently, and even possibly the word justified differently. Um, and so real quick, we're going to you know, dive into this. We're going to explain James first. We're going to go back and we're going to sp- explain Paul also. And we're going to talk about how they're actually in complete harmony, just coming from things from a different angle. And so we're going to get to that, and before we do, I want to talk a little bit about language. Um, We're going to get into it, and language isn't constant. Language is fluid, in that, the same word is not always carrying the same meaning in every sentence every time we use it. We use words differently at different times, and so that's why I'm not so big on word studies. Um, A lot of times, you know, we certainly need to talk about the words, because the words make up sentences, it's it's words that make up thoughts. Uh, But the real thing that we're trying to get at here is the thoughts, and the words are a vehicle to get us to that communication that the author is trying to do. And when we focus too much on individual words, we actually can miss the communication. We need to focus on the words, but also focus on the thoughts and the paragraphs about where this author is going to help us interpret the words. And so it's one of those things that's more of an art than a science uh, because the words help us interpret the thoughts and the thoughts help us interpret the words. And it's not easy, it really isn't. And people who are too um, n- have too much of a narrow focus, uh, I've seen this in, in not only with words but in verses, they will come to really bad beliefs in theology because they've separated words from their sentences and verses from their paragraphs and you come out with thinking that maybe James and Paul contradict even though they're using the same words they're using them different ways which are non-contradictory, but in harmony. Uh, sometimes they take verses out and come to bad theology because uh, they think that you know if we pray for anything in Jesus' name and believe enough, we'll get it. And you put those verses back in their context. That is not what they say at all. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to get into this James here. But as we do, we're going to talk about the differences. We'll read through James first and then through Paul. And we'll talk about the differences in those words uh, that uh, lead to some confusion differences in ways those words are used. And so, we need to talk about the author of Scripture, and the overall author of Scripture is God. God is the one who ultimately wrote all of this. And so, why, if God wrote all of it, why is God using the word faith in one way in James and the word faith in a different way in uh, Romans? And the answer is God speaks through the human authors, First of all, he speaks through them, through whatever language they speak. You know, James was likely writing in Greek here. In the Old Testament, Moses was writing in Hebrew. And so God, you know, didn't come to them and speak in different languages to them. He spoke in languages that they were familiar with. God inspired them in the lang- to write in the language that they knew, obviously. So not only the language, but the vocabulary. Different authors have different vocabularies soon as you study the scripture, James will use words, he'll use different words, and then Paul will. Even Paul will use different words at different times. Like, if you look at some of his letters, and that's why some, you know, super critical people will be like, Paul didn't write all of his letters, because Paul's vocabulary is so different in, say, his letter to the Ephesians versus his letter to the Romans, right? So different but that's because he's writing to different people at a different time, and his own language and vocabulary has either grown or changed. And so God speaks through these authors in the language that they spoke, the vocabulary that they used, and also the things that they're familiar with or used to. You know, and for example, when Jesus speaks to Peter, Jesus doesn't say, feed my giraffes, because Peter didn't know what a giraffe was. It doesn't mean anything to Peter. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Well, that makes sense. Everybody knows what, you know, uh, are familiar with sheep in that area at that time. And so God speaks to us uh, in in our language, in our vocabulary, in the way we're used to. And so when James goes to write, he's writing about and using words and ideas uh, that he's used to. But just because different authors are writing different styles doesn't mean that God is not the author of scripture. God is. You know, James writes in his own vocabulary, his own style, his own sentence structure. So does Moses. He writes in a different sentence structure, a different style, longer sentences, uh, you know, all these different ways that authors write in their own way. But God is the author of all of Scripture. He inspires James to write. He inspires Moses to write. And while James uses his own vocabulary, his own style, his own communication style, and Moses uses his own style, when God speaks in the Scripture, whether it's Moses writing it or one of the disciples who wrote the gospels. Whenever God speaks, it's almost always the same. And there's a few different ways actually that God speaks that are that are continuous throughout scripture. Uh, One of my favorite is God speaks to us by entering into a cultural experience that is very meaningful to us and then twisting it to change the meaning of it to give us new teaching. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, Moses writing this, Moses writes about the sacrificial system. Other nations sacrificed animals to God before Jewish people did. But Moses takes a cultural experience that they're all familiar with, the sacrificial system, which was usually used to try to get God's attention. God give us rain for our fields, I'm going to kill this animal to try to get you to give me rain for my fields. Or I might kill my firstborn son, because we're so desperate for rain, or for a harvest the sacrifice, something that they're all used to. God takes it and twists it. First of all, he tells them not to kill their children with Abraham and Isaac, which we're going to talk about today. He tells Abraham to go kill his kid, something Abraham would be very familiar with, the sacrificial system. Abraham takes his kid. God says at the last minute, nope, you don't do this for me. I don't want you to kill your kids for me. I'll provide the sacrifice. That's the whole point of he takes something that they're used to and he gives it a powerful twist. And this is new for Abraham. What a great way to teach new things. Uh, the sacrificial system as a whole. You know, Moses says, this isn't about getting me to give you rain. or It's about your sin. Whenever you sin, you've got to kill an animal because sin requires sacrifice. A cultural thing that they're used to, he takes it, he twists it to give it new meaning. That's Moses writing that, but God doing it and speaking. And then in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus, and there's lots of examples of this all throughout Scripture, we're only going to talk about two because I don't want this to drag on for hours. But this is the way God speaks throughout all of Scripture, whether it's Moses writing it or one of the prophets or, or one of the disciples. Jesus sits down, for example, at a dinner with his disciples, a cultural experience that they're all used to, the Passover supper. Each thing on the table has meaning they're familiar with. And God speaks the same way throughout all of Scripture. Jesus takes something they're familiar with. He holds it up and says, Now I'm giving you new meaning to this to teach you something new. Just like he held up the sacrificial system back then and says it's not about getting rain or, or blessings for me. It's about atoning for your sin. Now, this on the table, this bread, which was used to before symbolize how quickly God was going to deliver you from Egypt 2,000 years ago, how quickly he did deliver you from Egypt, this bread which is unleavened, because the point of it was you guys don't even have time for the bread to rise. I'm gonna, You're going to get out of Egypt so fast. I'm going to deliver you so fast that bread isn't even going to have time to rise. This unleavened bread, now that has new meaning. Now I'm going to break it. Look, it's breaking. Before I'm breaking it, before this is my body. See, it it symbolized something different before. Now it symbolizes something new, atoning for your sin. It's just awesome how God speaks and teaches. So God is consistent. God is the author of scripture. We can see that in many different ways. It's just incredibly powerful and uh, beautiful how God does this and speaks to us. And so James and Paul, getting back to why we're talking about this at all, James and Paul are going to write in their own language, write with their own style, write in what God is inspiring them. And so they're going to write differently, but God is the author of both. And we're going to look at what they're both saying and how they both agree. So James is, again, about people who are not deceiving themselves. A few weeks ago when we read James chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so there's a lot of people who love their sin, don't want to repent, but also want to go to heaven, right? I mean, so we hear this message, it hits our ears, we think, well, all I have to do is say I believe and I'm good. That is not true. What we need is actual faith. What we need is not to just say we believe, what we need to do is believe. And so now if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I I want to believe, right? I'm trying to say I believe, but I don't really feel like I believe. The answer, just real quick, you know, The answer is to pour your heart out before the Lord and seek Him with all your heart. You have a soul. You have a spirit. God has given that to us, and you need to learn how to use that, right? You need to learn how to use that to seek the Lord with all of your heart so passionately that if you found Him, you'd be willing to give up the things in your life that you love which contradict what God wants. And so when you're willing to do that, when you're ready to do that, when you're ready to see God in that way, then I think you will be blessed. You know, everything I see in Scripture says you will be blessed. Ask and you will receive. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Right, that's the point. When you're ready to to pursue God with that sort of, you know, abandon, you know, that sort of uh, recklessness that I'm willing, Lord, to do and go and and be whoever you want me to be, then we'll receive real faith from God through the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, if the message sounds good, and you're like, well, I want to believe, I want that, then start taking the next step in your faith. You know, start spending time in prayer, spending time in worship, seeking God with your whole heart. Get in the community, get on Sunday mornings, get on your knees, do whatever it takes to seek God with your whole heart. Forget about your dignity, forget about everything, right? Seek God with everything you've got and you will find them, and you will receive real faith. And so going back to that, uh, we don't want to be just hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word also. And so James says, people will say, you know, um, uh, I have faith. And James says, well, I'll show you my faith by my works. You'll be able to tell I believe by what I do. Okay, now, we got to talk for a moment because... We could very well and very quickly um, fall into unhealthy judging of ourselves and others. Um, We don't want to overcorrect. We'll never be perfect. James is not saying we'll be perfect. What he's saying is there'll be differences in our life because we believe. Uh, We're still sinners, right? We're still sinful people. Um, We'll never not be sinners. There's never a moment we're not anything but wholly dependent on God and His mercy. And so when we look at our lives, we should see our faith changing our lives and growing. And so some people may have far fewer good works than us, and we may have far fewer good works than others. But if we have faith, you know, we might be all headed on the right direction there if we're growing in our faith and our faith is changing our lives. And so it's not necessarily about, you know, getting to a point where you have X number of good works. That's not what James is saying. You know, he's not teaching works righteousness here. Where it's like all you, all of a sudden you reach a certain point, of right of good works, and then you're in. What James is essentially saying is your faith just has to have works, and you have to be headed that right direction. Then James says, um, you believe that God is one; you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so it's more than just knowledge of Jesus. Craig Groeschel, one of the you know most influential pastors in our country. Um, has this great book called The Christian Atheist where he sits down next to this woman on an airplane and she finds out he's a pastor and she says, Oh, I'm a a Christian too. You'd never know by the way I live it. But I am, I'm a believer. And he's like, no, that's not what it means. Even the demons say they believe. The demons know that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, as we read through the book of Mark and read through the Gospels um, in the book of Mark, demons are the first ones to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. They know who he is. It takes humans till chapter 9, and uh, I believe chapter 9 or 7 or something like that, with Peter and his confession that Jesus is the Christ for humans to get it. Demons knew right away. But they don't. their faith isn't doing them any good. As James says here, they shudder because they know. Like, you know, they know the power of God. And so they're trying to rebel against him. They know that Jesus is the Lord. He's the one they're rebelling against. That's fine. Human beings, it's the same thing, right? Like, we might know that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, but are we submitted to him? Are we following him? Is our belief about doing what he says? You know, that's the difference. We can't just say we believe. That would be the same as the demons. They they know that. They have that knowledge. It doesn't do them any good. Then James starts going into this example with Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? You see that faith was active in verse 22. Faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And so that's what James is saying. God told Abraham to go and um, sacrifice his son, and Abraham actually believed what God was telling him, believes what God says to us, and so he was actually going to go do it. And so chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 6, says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Again, if you believe that we're gonna have church tomorrow in the snow, you're gonna come and and be there. You're gonna you're gonna come. If you don't believe we're gonna have church, if you doubt that we're gonna be able to get the trailer there, you have doubts, you're not gonna do that. And so our belief changes our life. Abraham, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. Abraham wasn't just like, all right, I believe you, Lord, and just sat there doing nothing. No, Abraham actually went out and did it. His works were completed, or his works completed his faith. If he believed it, he'll go do it. And so what James is saying here is not, again, that Abraham was justified by his good deeds. Essentially, what he's saying is his faith was justified by his works. Now, I'm not sure if this is what James is doing, but it could be. The word justified here, James could be saying his faith is justified by his works rather than he himself is justified before God. Now, that's how Paul is going to use that term differently in a moment. So justified means that you are made right. All right, let's talk about what that word means. A justification, almost always, when it's used, means that this is how you are made right with God. So I'm not going to say that for sure I know that James is using the word justified in a different way, but it would make sense when you read the passage. That's what makes sense to me. Our, our Father was justified. His faith was justified by his works. And then he says that in the next sentence. His faith was completed by his works. In other words, his works made it uh, clear that his faith was real. His faith was justified. His faith was correct. Um, so you don't have to assume that usage for justification to make this passage make sense. Um, but if you do, it I think it furthers it. If you're going to say that Abraham was justified, meaning what James is saying here is he's, he's made right with God through his works, you couldn't, you know, if you want to do that, then all you have to do is not take that sentence out of context and keep it in with the rest of the paragraph. Then it makes clear what James is saying that he would be made right with God by his faith, which is completed by his works. If that makes made any sense at all, and so this is exactly why we don't take passages out of context. Let me um, try to say that again as clearly as I can. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? So, if we're gonna hold to that traditional definition of justification as being made right with God, then what James is saying here was not Abraham made right by God by his works. Right? Uh, but if we take that out of context, we're going to miss James' point, because that's, that's not James's point. That's not the only sentence he wrote. He clarifies that as you go on. For you see, his faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And so what he's saying is he's justified by faith that has works. And, of course, he's coming, clearly talking to people who think that they're Christians because they say that Jesus Christ is their Savior. And he's trying to combat that and say you can't just say it. Like it actually has to happen. <laughs> you know, you, you can't just say you believe, it actually has to have you have to have belief in your heart. And so when we don't take it out of context, then it's consistent with the rest of the scripture, with the rest of his passage. It doesn't contradict Genesis 156 because he actually quotes Genesis 156. It doesn't contradict Paul and Romans or Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. It's all about faith here in James, but it's faith with works. And that's why James is emphasizing those works because he's talking to people who are confused on what it means to have faith. And so he he quotes that Genesis 15, 6, right there. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so when James says faith alone, again, he's meaning faith that isn't really faith. You know, like in John three sixteen when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, that word belief means, like, actual belief. Not just, you know, saying you believe. And that's what James is saying here, too. When he says faith alone, his definition of faith is different than Paul's. When the apostle Paul writes, as we're going to see in a moment, when Paul writes the word faith, he's using it in the same sense as Jesus used the words belief. Like actual faith, actual belief. Here, James, when he uses the word faith, means no faith you know, this, you know, faith uh, alone. It doesn't, it's not actual faith. And so let's turn to Romans chapter 3 and go through what Paul says. Um, It's really funny. Paul uses the exact same example of Abraham to say that he is justified by his faith, not by his works. James is emphasizing, you know, He's emphasizing works to the point that uh, you can almost get confused here if you're not reading the whole thing and keeping it in context, and I think that you know that's how hard James is emphasizing works of Abraham here to show his true faith, Well, you know Paul is going to do the exact opposite and highlight this story about how this story shows that Abraham was justified by his faith and not his works. So slightly confusing. Um, just to to sum up real quick, we are saved by a faith where we actually believe in what Jesus says. Uh, We won't be perfect, but we will be different. Um, And so going to Romans chapter 3, Paul says, We hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so Paul agrees with James. Again, if you keep Paul's writings in context, they agree with that's exactly what James just said. Uh, And so reading in Romans chapter 4, verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so Paul is going to emphasize the opposite, that um, from the opposite angle, I should say. Same thing from the different perspective. Um, Paul saying, again, it's not about how many good works we do. It's about what faith we have. And so when you put both of these together, James and Paul, you get a really good understanding when you put them together accurately a really good full understanding of what salvation and what faith actually are and so going over to romans chapter 4 verse 13 for the promise to abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith you know paul basically what he's saying is again all of us have broken the law um it's not God's promise to us is not dependent on our keeping the law. Our God's promise to us is not dependent on how many good works we do. It's through our faith. and of course, as James will flesh out, um, that promise to us that Jesus Christ is going to come and save us and and bring us to heaven for an eternity. that's dependent not on how many good things we've done. It's not dependent on how we've kept God's laws. It's dependent on our faith faith, which is real, real belief, which does change some of our actions. And so that is, um, that's the deal between Paul and James. Um, it's a it's a balance that is a difficult one to walk for Christians. I know there's plenty of times where I look at my life and I, um, I just, you know, depends on how critical you want to be, right? Sometimes I look at my life and I'm like, Am I following God? Like, What have I done? What am I doing? Am I giving enough? Am I praying enough? Am I worshiping enough? Uh, if if I really believe in Jesus, wouldn't I have mastered this sin by now? Um, there's all these things that you can do as you analyze your life um, to see if you're following the Lord. And so I like to be as critical as possible so that I can repent of my sin and recognize where my sin is and what I need to repent of, as absolutely critical as possible. Uh, But then on the other side, I try not to let it necessarily um, affect my salvation and my understanding of my salvation. Uh, So my criticalness is simply so that I can repent and improve. I try to keep it from condemning myself because that can happen too. You can condemn yourself and be like, you know, do I even know God? All those things. And so I like to look at the things in my life and the things I'm doing right now where my faith has changed my life and changed my actions as evidence of my salvation. And so on the one hand, I want to be very supportive of God's grace for me and recognize that God is active in my life and that he has grace for all that sin in my life. That's wonderful. And on the other hand, I want to repent of all that sin, and that's where the criticalness comes in. Um, So I try to use my criticalness to lead me to repentance and not to make me doubt my salvation. I'm saved by the Lord. I know I have faith. My faith changes my life. Now, all these things that I do that are wrong, they should break my heart. I should be broken about them, and I should repent of them and seek to change them and start praying about that change also. And so, you know, I don't want to make anyone um, doubt their salvation, but then again, I don't want to make anyone... uh, um, you know uh, enable anyone who's deceiving themselves as James says in verse chapter 1 verse 22 um, you know we're not Christians just because we're not Christians just because we come to church just because you stand in a garage doesn't make you a car but then again you know I don't want to make people doubt their salvation either and so it's a bit of a delicate balance and a you know sometimes it can be a tough line to walk um and that's one of the reasons why it's really great to be a part of a small group. Here's a pitch for small groups, or part of you know a close community there in in our churches. You know, it's it's not enough to just come to church and sit there. That doesn't guarantee that we're going to be growing in our faith. Being a part of a group of Christians where you can talk with them and bounce the stuff off of them, and not just sit there and have to you know bounce it all around in your own head. Um, that's super important. Uh, so, if you're someone who's kind of struggling with that. Can, if you're feeling like maybe you're condemning yourself or deceiving yourself, one of the two, you know, get in a small group. Um, give me a call. Let's go out for coffee or something. I'm get in a small group and um, get into those relationships with other believers where they can you know, help you process and encourage you.